There is one subject that Jesus spoke about more than any other subject. And in fact, there are two, over 2,000 Bible verses that concentrate and focus on this particular topic. And it's not, as you might imagine, from listening to what the church talks about and has been talking about for the last 20 or 30 years, sex. It's not sex. Jesus spoke more about money than anything else in his teaching. Two-thirds of the parables that Jesus told used money as an illustration of what it was to be his follower. So if there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that address the subject of money, if Jesus himself thinks that money is so important that two-thirds of his parables are about money, why did Jesus think it was so important? Well, I think it was because Jesus recognized the power and the influence that money has and always has upon people. But the reality, too, is that in our society, in Scotland in 2016, this is a really important issue. Because the reality is, as we live in Edinburgh in 2016, that more and more people are completely messed up and clueless when it comes to the subject of money. And there's this paradox going on in our society where more people have more access to money than ever before. We can spend money faster than ever before. I don't know about you, but those contactless credit cards just scare the bananas out of me because it is just so easy to buy something. You don't have to remember your pin. You just go, ping, and that's it. And that's it. And you think, it's so easy. I just go, ping, and that's it. It doesn't even make the ping noise to sort of tell you that something is happening. All you do is hold your card over the, the card reader and the money is gone from your account. And what we're seeing is increasing numbers of people in a society which is on one level more affluent and where more people have had more wealth than ever before, getting into increasing difficulty when it comes to money. Mark Dampier is the research director of Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is an asset management firm in the city of London. And he said this recently. He said, basically, this generation is stuffed when it comes to money. They will have to work until they drop. Today, everyone wants everything now without any personal sacrifice. When people buy property, they expect to furnish it fully. People need to learn to save, even if it means living on bread and water and sitting on orange crates. Too many people think that they are going to win the lottery. And that is how lots of people in our society, lots of people in our culture live. They live in a way that betrays the fact that they think that at some point, somebody somewhere is going to give them a whole lot of money. And it's only going to get worse. This generation of university leavers who left uh, this summer are the first generation to leave, particularly in England, with enormous debt. It isn't as bad in Scotland, although it might be in some cases. Um, but my eldest son, Josh, he left university this summer with over £40,000 worth of debt, plus interest. 
Now, Joshua's resolved, he's determined, he's decided that he's never, ever going to have to pay it back because he's never going to earn a salary that is a level uh, requisite with him um, paying it back. Um, He's either going to go into sort of local politics or community organizing or maybe get ordained in the church. And that means that he will never, ever earn enough money to have to pay his university loans back. But the thought for my generation of our kids' generation, your generation, coming out of university with over £40,000 of debt, which is only going to increase with the interest. And we have let Josh know that it is his debt. It is not our debt. It is his debt. That is very, very frightening. As I say, at the same time as a society, we've never been in a position where so many have access to so much, and yet often too where so many people feel that they are marginalized, feel that somehow they're left behind. One of the, I think, um, reasons for so many people voting for both Brexit and uh, for Trump, uh, or whatever you may think of those two decisions, was because there is a huge swathe of our society and a huge swathe of American society that simply feels left behind. It feels that everybody else somehow is getting better and getting on and improving their lot, and they're the ones who are left behind. You might think that they've chosen the wrong solution, but that is the solution that they've gone for. It's one of the reasons, I think, why some people voted for Brexit and some people are voting for Trump. And we live in a very uneven world. 5% of the world's population have 20% of the world's wealth. And that 5% of the world's population is only getting richer. So we're in a world, in a society, where increasingly the rich are getting richer and richer and the poor are getting poorer and poorer. And this sense of being left behind is growing and increasing, not just in the West, but also around the world. It's one of the reasons, I think, as well as climate change and and all sorts of situations that are contributing to the migration crisis, is that it's not just now that people are poor, for example, in parts of, of Africa, but all the people who are poor in Africa, lots of them have access to the internet. They have a mobile phone, and they can see what the West is like. And they think that if only they make it to the UK or to France or or to Spain or to Italy or to Germany, life will be as it is on the internet. Amazon will come true in their lives. And it's just heightened that awareness of what they haven't got. And that's why we're seeing huge swathes of the population. Yes, because of religious reasons. Yes, because of climate change. Yes, because of war but in a way that is unprecedented before because they have access to what life is like somewhere else. So the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Libby this morning was telling us about Bill Gates um, and apparently he's worth $90 billion. If he was a country, uh, he would be about the, was it the 30th country in, in the world? Seventh? 37th. If he was a nation, Bill Gates would be the 37th richest nation in the world. 
Apparently, if he were to spend money every single day of the rest of his life, he would need to spend $6 million every single day to get rid of the rest of his wealth. Libby wondered what he would do and how he would spend that money. I came up with several ideas uh, while Libby was speaking this morning. But it is just amazing that one individual, $90 billion. Now, I happened to hear an interview with Melinda Gates, his wife, and she runs the Gates Foundation, and they have given away $30 billion already, and they plan to give loads more away. But although it's very generous, it isn't actually sacrificial. Because does Bill Gates really miss the 30 billion that he hasn't given away? I mean, I, I would presume once you've got 1 billion, what's 89 more? You're not going to miss 30 billion out of 90 billion. In the same time, the average household debt in Scotland has risen 65% since 2008. The average household in Scotland now owes £4,000. So we live in that situation, we live in that society. Jesus lived in a very different society, an agricultural society, a society where lots of people were far poorer than they are in today's society, but where, where there were also very wealthy people as well. And as Jesus looked at humanity, as Jesus looked at how God wanted people to live, Again and again and again, he addressed the subject of money because he recognized that money is powerful. He recognized the attraction that money has for people and the hold that money can have over them. Now, he recognized that money itself is neutral. Money itself is neutral. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. What Jesus said was the love of money was the root of all kinds of evil. But money itself is neutral. But money has a power. And there are, as we'll see in a minute, several similarities between money and deities, between gods and idols. Money has many of the characteristics of a deity. And the reality is, Jesus tried to teach his followers and his friends, his disciples, that if we don't own money and our attitudes towards it, then in a strange sort of way, money will own us. If we don't take control of money, then money will control us. It will control the way in which we think. It will control the way in which we live. It will certainly control the way in which we spend or save or don't save money, whether we give or don't give any money away. And we'll find ourselves often trapped by money. Because money, although it's neutral, is an incredibly powerful thing. As one of the early church fathers, St. John of Chrysostom, wrote, riches are not forbidden in the church, but the price of them is. Riches are not forbidden in the church, but the price of them is. Now, in the same way that Jesus spoke about many subjects, in talking about money, Jesus does not mince his words. In that passage that, that Roger read for us a few moments ago, in talking to his followers, his friends, his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount, where if you remember we looked at this last week, Jesus is talking to his friends, he's talking to his followers, he's talking to his inner circle, 
And yet at the same time, there's a crowd of about five or 6,000 people listening in in this natural amphitheater. And they, they've reckoned they've found the place where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this natural amphitheater, this sort of valley uh, with soft hills, which just the natural acoustics of it lent itself to somebody right in the, in the bottom of the valley just Talk, sitting down and talking to a group, but being able to be listened to and overheard by a crowd of many, many people. So what Jesus isn't doing on the Sermon on the Mount, he's not laying down a morality, he's not laying down a particular ethic, he's not saying this is how you should live in order to earn God's approval, but he's talking to his followers, his friends, his disciples, and he's saying this is how you should live. If you belong to the kingdom of God, if you live life under my rule, if you live life under my reign, if you claim allegiance to the kingdom of God, this is how your life should be qualitatively different. And the key verse, again, just to remind you, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, is Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, where Jesus says, Do not be like them. And he's contrasting how his followers should be with the, 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 the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people, the Jewish clergy, if you like. And he's saying, do not be like them. And he starts to go through very ordinary subjects. He talks about anger and adultery. He talks about marriage and sex. He talks about forgiveness and revenge. And then in this section that we've got in, in Matthew, what we call chapter 6, he talks about prayer and he talks about fasting, and he talks about money. Now, I find it intriguing that to Jesus, each one is as spiritual as the other. Prayer, fasting, and money. He gives them guidance as to how they should pray, teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Gives them guidance about how they should fast, and then he also goes to speak about their attitude towards money. And as is often the case, he uses a, a, a set of comparisons, three pairs of comparisons. He speaks about two types of treasure, two types of ambition, and two masters. So firstly, verses 19 to 21, he says there are two types of treasure. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he lays it out very clearly. He says there are two different types of treasure. There is earthly treasure and there is heavenly treasure. There is earthly treasure, the sort that is corruptible, moth-eaten, it can be stolen, and it be cor can be corroded by rust. And then there's heavenly treasure that is incorruptible, where there are no moths. It's good news, no moths, presumably no midges in heaven as well. There is no crime, they can't be stolen, and there is no decay. Now it's worth noting what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say there's a ban on possessions, he doesn't say that things are of themselves bad. He doesn't tell people to give all their money away. He isn't saying that it's wrong to save or invest. And neither is he saying that it's wrong to enjoy the good things of life. But what Jesus is saying is that he is against selfish accumulation. 
Do not store up for yourselves. He's against selfish accumulation for its own sake. He's not saying you can't enjoy life. He's not saying that you can't enjoy the finer things of life. He's not saying that you should sell everything and give your money to the poor. But he is saying that if you're just accumulating more and more and more stuff, that's not good. And that doesn't show that your primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. The reality is that materialism, it's so easy for materialism to lead us away from God. Often people who are poor materially are very well aware of their spiritual state as well. The more you have materially, the easier it is to think that you are self-sufficient. That when the Bible talks about people who are poor in spirit, that doesn't apply to you, because you've got all this stuff. And you can almost sort of inoculate yourself. You can immerse yourself in all the possessions that you have. You can protect yourself against the world, and you become self-sufficient. Because look at the world, look at the life that you've built for yourself. And the reality is that some of the most, well, the saddest, most tragic people that I've ever met in life are some of the wealthiest, who've had the most money. Some of them that I've, I've, I can't even dream about how much money they've got materially. They have got everything that the world wants. But they are miserable absolutely miserable. Their relationship life is a mess. Their self-image is a mess. They're incredibly paranoid about how people think about them because of all the money that they've got. Now, it doesn't mean that the richer you are, the more miserable you are. Um, it was Spike Milligan that said, money can't buy you friends, but it buys you a better class of enemy. Um, he was right. Doesn't mean necessarily that the more money you have, the more miserable you'll be. I've met some very wealthy people who were very happy, thank you very much. But it certainly blunted often their awareness of God and their need of God. Joe Stoll, who is the president of Cornerstone University in Michigan, wrote this. The real point of materialism is not how much you have, but what has you. It's not what we hold, but how tightly we hold it. Not what we have, but how we got it. It's not how much you have, it's what has you. Jesus recognized the profound truth that our hearts follow where we think treasure is. Our hearts follow where we think treasure is. So two treasures. Secondly, verses 22 and 23, two ambitions or two ways of looking at the world. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus lays out this stark contrast between light and darkness. Elsewhere in the New Testament, again in John's Gospel, in Paul's letters, it speaks about the fact that once we were in darkness... 
When we come to know Jesus, we transfer over into the kingdom of light. And there's no spiritual Switzerland. There's no spiritual no man's land. There's no sort of neutral zone. It's either darkness or it's light. And Jesus tells his followers and friends, the choices that we make about money, the choices that we make about possessions, show which kingdom and whose kingdom we belong to. Darkness or light. If people were to see your credit card statements, would they be able to, sh- to recognize, to discern, to tell that you belong to the kingdom of light? If they looked at your history on Amazon or eBay or wherever you buy things online, could they see a distinctive difference in how you spend your money with how somebody who isn't a Christian spends their money? Because if they can't, then Jesus says there's something wrong. Because if you're in the kingdom of light, your credit card statement should reveal that. Your spending habits should show that. The way in which you think about time and money and possessions and people will betray which kingdom you belong to. One writer, Daryl Bott, put it this way. For Christ, money is an idolatry that we must be converted from in order to be converted to Jesus. And it was Bach who says, money has many of the characteristics of deity, of a God. It can give us security, it can induce guilt, it gives us freedom and power, and it can seem to be everywhere. And most sinister of all is its bid for omnipotence. That money is all-powerful. Two treasures, two ambitions, and finally two masters. Verse 24. And again, Jesus just lays it on the line. He said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or vice versa. And he just finishes this particular part of the passage that Roger read, and he just says, you cannot serve both God and money. And he lays it out as a very stark choice. You're either going to serve money or you're going to serve God. And it's that brutal. It's that stark a choice. It's very simple, Jesus says. The old translation, the revised standard version, didn't translate the word as money. It translated the word as mammon. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And that had an extra resonance for the people that Jesus would have been speaking to. Mammon, in the ancient world, was the name of the god of wealth in Carthage, the capital of Roman Africa. It was a word with a Hebrew origin, entrust. And traditionally, the word mammon referred to the money, ironically, that you would entrust to the bankers. It was your savings, it was your profits, it was your interest. And you would entrust this money, this mammon, to bankers. Because we all know how trustworthy bankers are. Well, they used to be. Over time, the word mammon came to mean not just that which was entrusted but that which you entrusted it to. So what Jesus is saying here is you cannot serve God and money. You cannot put so much time and effort and 
ingenuity into thinking how to maximize profit and interest and return and be driven by the need to acquire money and gain more money and gain more stuff and serve God. Because if you're spending all your time thinking about this, you're missing what God has in store for you. And the direction, the trajectory, the the focus of your life is over here towards mammon, towards money, about making yourself secure, about um, laying up uh, treasure on earth rather than investing in the kingdom and putting God first in your life. So very simply, as I finish, some questions. Where is your treasure? If you think about your heart, if you think about your mind, if you think about your ambition, if you think about what you want to achieve in life, where is your treasure? Is it treasures on earth? Or is it treasure in heaven? And Jesus lays out that very stark choice, that very stark contrast. You're either storing up for yourself treasures on earth, or you're storing up for yourself treasure in heaven. And as you think about the place of money in your life, who is in charge of your life? Do you have control of your finances? Or is money actually in control of you? Do you think you are a lesser person if you haven't got the latest mobile phone? If you haven't got the latest computer? If you haven't got the latest pair of shoes, pair of jeans, whatever it is, we will all have our different things that appeal to us. Because if you think you are less of a person, if you haven't got the latest dot, 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 whatever it might be, then money is controlling you. And you aren't in control of money. Over the last 30 years, I've had to do a lot of thinking and learning about money. I want to be very honest with you this evening and say I am clueless about money. Useless with money. The person, it's a bit like a sort of recovering alcoholic, the person who's standing in front of you. Um, I am useless with money. Um, Kathy, my wife, just thought it was God's hilarious sense of humor that I started to lead a church that did a seven million pound building project. And the idea that I was in charge of a church that was doing a multi-million pound building project, my wife thought was hilarious. That was encouraging. But she was right. Because in my personal finances for years, I was a disaster. Absolute disaster. When we got married and we got to that bit in the service where it says, all that I am I give to you and all that I have I share with you, Kathy just laughed at me. Because she knew that what I was bringing to the marriage was just debt. It wasn't as much as as Josh, but it was just debt. Two years before we got married, I went on a brilliant three-week holiday to Norway with three friends. We had a fantastic time. Norway is really, really, really expensive. Beer is 15 pounds a pint. I know. I had a few beers during that holiday in Norway. 
Two years later, when Kathy and I got married, I had not paid off that holiday. That debt was still on my credit card bill. Kathy had not been on that holiday. So when we said to each other, all that I have I give to you and all that I am I share with you, if you watch our wedding video, that's how long ago it was, it was a video, um, Kathy just laughs at me. Because the idea of me bringing anything materially to our marriage was a joke. Because of the way in which Kathy's parents, um, their relationship went, her dad always looked after the, the money. In my parents' relationship, it was always my mum who looked after the money in our house because my dad was as useless as I was. That's where I got it from. Six months into our marriage relationship, Kathy realised that the presumption that she'd made that I was going to look after the money wasn't going to happen. Because her model in a marriage, because of what her parents had been like, was that the bloke would look after the finances. Bills weren't paid. Things weren't being looked after. Debt was rising. And after six months of being married to me, 27 and a half years ago, Kathy took our finances in hand. And ever since then, she's looked after the money. Because I'm really, really good at spending money. But I'm not great at looking after it. I'm not great at saving it. And I've passed this gift on to my children. <laughs> Iona is a fantastic person with money. She follows her mum. My two sons, guess what? They're just like me. Hence why Josh has come out of university with over £40,000 worth of debt. The mind boggles how much Nathan is going to come out with because he's even more like me than Josh. So what I'm sharing with you in the last five minutes are just a few tips that I've had to learn the hard way. But please don't think that what you're hearing from this evening is a money expert. Martin Lewis, I am not. But I've learned this. First tip, be honest about where you are with money. Don't pretend. When we were going through the building project, one of the first things that we did about two years before we had the first gift day was actually talk, preach, teach about money for three months. Only one of those weeks, of those 12 weeks, was on giving. Because as I talked to people in the congregation, in the church, 12, 14, 15 years ago, I realized that most people in P's and G's 15 years ago were clueless about money. And some of them worked for banks. But they were clueless about their own personal finance. They hadn't got a clue about how much money, how much income they had at the start of the month. Most people, when I talked to them, said, well, yeah, money comes in at the start of the month. And you know what? By the end of the month, money's gone. And I don't know how that happened. And so what we did very practically was we taught people the tools of, of how to budget. How to recognize how much money, what are your incomings, and then what are your outgoings? Because we knew that if we wanted to people to plan to give to this building project that was going to cost, we thought, about 5 million, but it ended up 6.9, that if people hadn't got a clue about their money, then they weren't going to know how to give. And so we gave out loads and loads of very simple, straightforward, this is how you plan a personal budget. And loads of people in the church said, that was really helpful. I've never known that. 
And I began to think, maybe I'm not so stupid when it comes to money. So be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. If it helps, be honest with a really close friend, somebody that you trust, about what you're like with money. And then ask them to hold you accountable. Name the power of money and shame it. Don't be one of those people who has money at the start of the month and who by the end of the month has no money, but you just don't know how that happened. The reality is you have spent that money. You are the cause for why that money was there at the start of the month and isn't there anymore. And if you don't get in control of your money, your money will control you. Secondly, recognize the power of money. As Jesus said, money of itself is neutral. It can be used for for great good. That $30 billion that that the Gates Foundation has given away so far is, is moving to eradicate malaria. It's moving to eradicate poverty around the world. But you need to recognize the power of money. Recognize that the, the control that money can have over you. If you're, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but often I, I used to be in a shop and I, my um, weakness used to be was, was jackets. Um, that's why I'm not wearing one. Um, and you may look at some of the jackets and think, Dave, that's a big weakness. Um, but I used to love jackets. I would have four, five, six, seven, eight jackets because I used to wear them for work. And I used to go into a shop you know, like Slater's on George Street. That's an older gentleman's shop. And um, Urban Outfitters, if you're young and trendy, or maybe not. Um, and I'd think, that's a really nice jacket. That's a really nice jacket. I need that jacket. Note, not I want that jacket, I need that jacket. And I'd start to feel my palms get sweaty. And my heart would start to beat faster. And I'd think, I need that jacket. I would look good in that jacket. I could preach in that jacket. That jacket could be used for the kingdom of God. You see, you, you start to explain things and rationalize things to yourself and, and justify it. And I learned over the years that as soon as I started to feel that, that sweaty feeling in my palms, as soon as my heart started to beat a bit faster because of that jacket, and there'll be different things for you. Might be a pair of shoes, might be a car, It might be an iPhone, it might be a computer, it might be a tablet, an iPad, whatever it is. There'll be different things for different ones of us. What I learned was that if I felt like that, I walked out of the shop. I recognized what was going on and I walked out of the shop. Because the reality was that I didn't need that jacket. I wanted that jacket. And I think that jacket wanted me. But I named it. And when I walked out of the shop and just thought, no. It it was robbed of its power over me. And I used to bring it to God and say, Lord, should I get that jacket? And most times God said no. (laughs) Because I didn't need that jacket. So be honest about where you are. Recognize the power of money. If you get into trouble, ask for help. Ask for help. If you are in a muddle about your finances, if you are racking up debt at the moment and money for you is something in your life that is completely out of control, please ask for help. We've got people in this church, debt counsellors, we've trained them through CAP. They can help you. 
We run the money management course occasionally. And if you would like that, we can run it for you. Because you won't be the only one. Please don't just stay in this fog about money. If you can't budget, plan and save, your money will disappear. And the final thing, and the thing that I found and that we found as a family and as a couple has released us from the power of money, is we've learned to give. Learned to give. Both Kathy and I learned and began to give when we were students. You see, it doesn't matter how little you have. But the reality is, if you don't start to learn to give when you've not got very much, you will not give when you have more. Now, I remember someone saying this at a CU meeting 35 years ago when I was a university student. And I went, yeah, yeah, right, whatever. But he was right. I learned to give when I was a university student. Kathy learned to give when she was a university student. Both of us come from non-Christian homes. Both of us had to have interesting conversations with our parents who said, why are you giving our money away? We give it to you. And we had to explain that once they'd given us the money, it was ours to do with as we thought fit. But we both learned to give as students. And it now means that we give a percentage of our income away. And it's just natural. And we, we budget and we, we spend what we spend. And right, the first thing we do, on the, when as soon as the money comes into our bank accounts, from, from Kathy's job and my job, and, and Kathy earns loads more than I do, and God knows that, and that's why he put me in this job, <laughs> is we, we give it right at the start of the month, so we, we never even notice it. So we don't budget as though the money's there and then the money's gone. We budget taking into account that that money has been given away. And that's brought so much freedom, so much release. We've divested money of its power over us because we've decided to control money and we've decided to control our giving. The tithe is a minimum of 10%. That's what they used to do in the Old Testament. But the reality is when Jesus said, do not be like them, he meant this about money as well. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the devout Jews of the time, they didn't just give 10%. That was the bare minimum that was expected of a religious Jew. The minimum an average Jew would give was the 10% temple tax plus a 10% festival tithe plus 3% for the poor plus 3% if you made a profit at work. That meant that the average Jew was giving at least 26% of their income away. Jesus says, do not be like them. Jesus says, let your righteousness surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. I.e., if they're giving 26% away, if you're my follower, Jesus says, you should be giving more than that. Somebody said the tithe was not meant to be a ceiling. It was merely a floor. And the final thing is be generous. And be generous because we follow, we believe in a generous God. One of the most powerful ways in which Jesus is described is though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sake. We worship, we follow, we believe in, we show allegiance to and are the recipients of a God that we cannot outgive, a God who is generous, 
who keeps on giving. And if we're going to resemble Jesus, if there's going to be a family likeness, then we have to be generous people as well. And as part of that journey, we'll learn the difference between what is generous giving and what is sacrificial giving. And the two aren't always the same.